Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. Turtles are survivors, navigators, voyagers, crisscrossing Earth's seas while continents moved and oceans grew and shrunk. But the modern ocean is presenting them with more challenges than ever. This month, we'll be swimming with Earth's turtles, meeting the different species, spying on their lifestyles, and seeing the ocean through their eyes. How do they manage their incredible feats of navigation? And what do we need to do to make sure that these fabulous animals sail with us into the ocean's future? As always, I'll be joined by three experts who'll share their deep knowledge and experience with us. Professor Graham Hayes from Deakin University will talk us through the key stages of a turtle's life. Dr Nicole Esteban from the University of Swansea will share what we know about turtle navigation. And Dr Liliana Coleman from the University of Exeter reveals the threats that turtles face in our changing world. If you've got turtles in an environment, that often indicates a healthy environment where things are going well. We often wonder how turtles can arrive at their destination and it's something that's been marvelled at for centuries. I just hope they are still here for the next generations to come. Let's begin at the beginning. There are seven different species of turtle. Hawksbill, loggerhead, leatherback, olive ridley, green, flatback and Kemp's ridley. The smallest is the Kemp's ridley at around 60 centimetres in length and the largest is the leatherback at around 1.7 metres long. The top of their shell is called the carapace and the bottom is the plastron, although for the helpfully named leatherback turtles it's not actually a bony shell, it's a flexible leather-like skin. The bony shells of the others have two layers, a flattened bone plate that fuses with their ribs and a layer of keratin, which is the same tough protein that makes up our hair and nails, and that keeps them waterproof. Turtles are reptiles, and so they need to come up to the ocean surface to breathe. But the vast majority of their lives are spent underwater, and they manage that by being able to hold their breath for incredibly long periods of time. Some species can last for seven hours between breaths when they're resting by slowing down their heart rate. We may love seeing videos of baby turtles hatching and wiggling down the beach to the ocean, but the reality is that sea turtle hatchlings face a really tough world. It's estimated that only one in a thousand reach adulthood, and although they can live to be a hundred years old, the dangers of the sea from both natural predators and humans mean that the average current lifespan is only about 40 years. We'll hear more about those dangers later on. But first, let's have a 101 in turtle natural history. I spoke with Professor Graham Hayes from Deakin University, who began by explaining why turtles are so important to a marine environment. Oh, I think they're an I- iconic, charismatic species. Some people call them a, a flagship species. If you've got turtles in an environment, that often indicates a healthy environment where things are going well. If the turtles have been exterminated in an environment, that's bad news. So they're a really good sign that all is well in a system. And of course, there are different species of turtles. So could you just run us quickly through the different species and approximately how big they are? So there's only seven species of sea turtles. So not very many species compared to, say, fish in the ocean or seabirds or something like that. And as adults, the size would vary from sort of just under a metre 
So something sort of quite manageable that you could pick up might weigh 50 kilos, 40 kilos, something like that. Up to one species, the leatherback turtle, it is the biggest of, of all turtles, that from the tip of that nose to the tip of its tail, it could be over two meters long and weigh maybe seven or eight hundred kilos. So that's, you know, I weigh, I weigh about 75 kilos. So that's maybe 12 times more than, a, than an average size human being would weigh. The sort of classic cartoon turtle that everyone will be familiar with, with a nice, nice shell and sort of looks turtle-like, they would include species like the green turtle, which is an unusual turtle in that it is largely herbivorous, so it just feeds on seagrass and seaweed. Then there's the loggerhead turtle. As its name implies, it's got a, a big lump of a head. It's got huge jaws, and it uses those jaws for crushing clams and other mollusks. So it's more of a, a, a carnivore with strong jaws that will crush those, those mollusks. Then you have the hawksbill turtle, and again, its name sort of gives you some feel for how it looks like. It's got a, a long beak, hence the name hawksbill, and it uses that beak for probing into little crevices because it feeds on sponges. So its beak, beak allows it to extract sponges on coral reefs, for example. So those are three of the really sort of well-known species, if you like. And how do they live their life? From the beginning, what does a turtle do? They only spend a very small proportion of their life ashore. So the female crawls ashore and she lays her egg in a nest and then she goes back into the sea. The hatchlings, they incubate for a couple of months and then they emerge from the nest, scurry down the beach and then they go into the water. And for them, that'll be the last time that they will be on land until they're adults themselves. And so they will spend the first part of their life just drifting around the open ocean. They're likely to be hundreds, thousands of kilometers out at sea. And then as they get bigger, then their life starts to change. So when they get to about the size of a dinner plate, then they start to rock up in coastal, shallow water environments. And then for most species, shallow coastal environments becomes the place where they live through on till, till adulthood. And of course, it's very important to understand what turtles are eating. But that sounds quite hard. You know, if they're living out, they're feeding out in the open ocean, catching a turtle, having its dinner, sounds like a tough ask. And so how do you find out what they eat and where they eat? It is a hard question, but we have various methods at our disposal for doing that. We can actually catch certainly juvenile turtles. They are a bit more manageable, if you like. So routinely we would go out into the field in their, in their shallow foraging environment. Sometimes they're feeding only in half a metre of water. And we would quite literally sneak up on the turtles and grab them. You know, there's no, uh, no sort of finesse about it. And, and that's how we would get our hands on them. And what you can then actually do is take us a tiny amount of, of, a, of a tissue sample from the shell of the turtle and locked up in, the, in that, that shell is information about what the, the diet of that individual is. And that certainly gives us an indication of whether it's feeding at the base of the food chain, for example, on, on seagrass, or whether it's further up the food chain. So that's one approach that we use. But the second approach that we're going to trial in, in the coming years, which is going to be really, really exciting to do, is putting cameras on the backs of turtles. So we actually directly film the turtle as it goes about its business and directly observe what it's feeding on. So the leatherback turtle, the biggest turtle alive in, in the world's oceans, 
That lives out in the open ocean and it can dive extremely deeply. So we've actually recorded the world record dive for a turtle, which was made by a leatherback in the North Atlantic, which was almost 1,300 meters. That's astonishing. Wow. Yeah. So that's almost a mile down. And that's the turtle just doing its thing. In the case of a leatherback turtle, its diet is jellyfish mainly. So that's a turtle just going down prospecting for, for jellyfish. And they can stay down quite happily for 45 minutes, something like that. But the other species that I talked about, so things like the green turtle and the loggerhead turtle and the hawksbill turtle, they tend to dive to much shallower depths. In the case of the green turtle, for example, because it feeds on seagrass, seagrass only occurs fairly close to the ocean surface. So a green turtle doesn't need to dive very deep to get to the seagrass. So its dive depth would typically be 20, 30, maybe 40 metres, something like that, but certainly very rarely over 100 metres. So how do, how do turtles breed? Reproduction is always a hard thing to track, often for some species, but for the turtles, how, how do they reproduce? Well, we know quite a lot about that, actually, because we can, we can study that fairly well, because the breeding, the, the mating of the males and the females, often occurs in fairly shallow water, close to the nesting beaches. So what we've been able to do in some parts of the world is go out and observe mating pairs to get a good feel for what's the ratio of males to females. And we, we've done drone surveys to get a feel for that. And so what typically happens in the breeding season is that the male turtles rock up first. They arrive first at the breeding grounds because they don't want to be late to the party, as it were. What they want to do is mate with the females as soon as possible because once a female has been mated with, she often loses interest. So if you're a male and you're late to the party, you've missed your chance, essentially. So the males arrive early and wait to then intercept the females as they arrive before the nesting season. And then typically, sort of six weeks or so, something like that, after the turtle turtles have been mating, the females then start to come ashore to lay their first clutches of eggs. So the turtle egg is incubating in, in the nest on a beach, but for the first few weeks of incubation, it has, it has no gender. It's not a male or a female. And whether it de develops into a male or it develops into a female is determined entirely by the temperature that it experiences in the middle of the incubation period. So a warmer nest produces females, and a cooler nest produces male turtles. And that gives rise to concerns, obviously, with climate change and climate warming, that rising temperatures, all else being equal, will lead to the production of more and more female turtles and fewer and fewer males. So we're not really, for most sites, concerned about how the sex ratio has become more skewed in the last few decades. What we're really concerned about is what's going to happen in the next future decades. Graham Hayes from Deakin University. Like many species in the ocean, turtles can still seem really mysterious. They're elusive and hard to study, and they've got a huge ocean to hide in. We still have a lot to learn, but scientists from the Bertarelli Marine Science Programme are working hard to answer some of the big open questions. PhD student Holly Stokes and Dr. Nicole Esteban visited the Chagos Archipelago earlier this year to better understand the population size of turtles in the area. Here's Holly. 
So we're here today in the first stage of the study, which is going to be to capture at least 40 turtles residing here. And we expect this is going to take us quite a few days. We've timed this visit to Turtle Cove at very low spring tides, when the sandbanks are barely covered with seawater and uh, turtles are foraging in just 10 centimetres depth of water on the seabed. Low tide unfortunately happens to be at midday, so it's really hot and humid. Winds are gusting at 24 miles an hour, so you can probably hear them on the recording uh, down the lagoon, also bringing intermittent rain. So one minute we're in glaring sunshine with light reflecting off the water, so it's difficult to see the turtles, and the next minute in a heavy rainstorm, which then reduces visibility. To conduct this, we are going to paint each turtle with white paint, um, which is visible from the air. This non-toxic paint disappears after a few weeks, but it helps researchers like Holly and Nicole to compare marked versus unmarked turtles and to calculate how many turtles are residents of that area. But why is it important to mark turtles? And how can we track them when they embark on a huge trip from nesting to foraging grounds? Dr Nicole Esteban has been monitoring the journey of one particular turtle, and she told me how it all began. So it was a very rainy night, we were soaked, and uh, we then saw the unmistakable tractor-like tracks of a green turtle and thought, great, fantastic, there's a turtle on the beach, and then mustered the two groups we had walking up and down the beach to come together after she had finished laying her eggs and before she went to sea so that we could then attach satellite tag. That was actually the first time and the only time we saw the turtle, which was a female green turtle. She was about 110 centimetres shell length, which is fairly large for a green turtle. And uh, the volunteers all commented how serene she was, which is how she got her name Serenity. The turtle navigation is the thing that turtles are probably most famous for out, out in the, the public sphere. Talk to us a little bit about what you learn when you track them using satellites, you know, where do they go and why are they, why are they going there? We often wonder how turtles can arrive at their destination. And it's something that's been marvelled at for centuries. In fact, Charles Darwin commented on it from Turtles on Ascension Island in the, in the middle of the Atlantic, saying how on earth can they reach that tiny speck of land. With hatchlings, it's very difficult to study them because they're so small, their shell's growing very rapidly. So it's very difficult to attach anything to a turtle shell. But scientists have been able to study their departure from the beaches where they've nested and find that they always head out into the open ocean through the waves. We know that turtles use the Earth's geomagnetic field in order to assist them with their navigation. So there's two different types of magnetic properties. There's the strength of the Earth's field. It varies from poles to equator. That gives us a north-southly direction. Uh, there's also inclination where the angle of the magnetic field is weaker in some areas than others. And so that allows the turtles to have a north-south as well as east-west orientation because they're picking up on both properties of the magnetic field. Do we know why they are travelling these huge distances? Obviously, a key factor in a turtle's life history is their success at finding foraging grounds with plentiful resources. So green turtles, they head towards seagrass beds. So their migration ultimately can vary between several tens of kilometres um, up to several thousand kilometres because it depends at the point of their um, oceanic gyre movements 
uh, where they come across the seagrass beds as a young turtle. And then they then return to their natal grounds to nest. At the beginning, they're too small to be able to swim against the current. Um, but after five to eight years of age, they're then strong enough to swim against the current. And it's thought they then follow the smell and they have very good olfactory senses to be able to detect their ultimate foraging ground. I'm imagining a turtle swimming around in an ocean. Tell me a little bit about its senses. All the senses it has, does it see very well? Can it hear? What can turtles sense about the world around them? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question that we are aiming to to know more about. We know that they have excellent olfactory senses, so the sense of smell, and they're able to reorientate themselves if placed in a different location towards their foraging site. They don't have very good eyesight, but certainly it's good enough to be able to see a shark. And there's typical turtle behaviour for anti-predation, where they will literally turn so that their shell on their back is towards the shark. And they will swim in a circular-like fashion in order to maintain that shell between the turtle and its more um, fleshier kind of parts, particularly the flippers or its head. So they use um, the shell as a shield? Yes, exactly. And then the other sense is their sense of hearing. Their sense of hearing is not as acute, certainly in water, as it is outside of water. When turtles come out to nest, any noise along the beach will prevent a turtle from coming up the beach to nest, and it will turn and leave the beach. So where did Serenity go? What do we know about her journey? So Serenity was a turtle that um, migrated a huge distance. With most green turtles, we'd expect just um, 1,000 kilometres or so. It's about 600 miles. Uh, But the total length of Serenity's migration was um, just under 5,000 kilometres. And... um, that's, that's an incredible distance. It's it huge. is, isn't it? So that's for those thinking in Imperial, that's just over 3,000 miles. Uh, and um, Serenity migrated all the way to Providence Island in Farquhar Atoll, which is an outer atoll of the Republic of Seychelles. So that's just north of Madagascar. When we look at the straight line distance, that's 3,000 kilometres, but the length of the track was 5,000 kilometres. So she actually overshot and went further west by about 600 kilometres before turning and then starting to locate her foraging ground on Farquhar. So what happened to Serenity after that? She found her feeding ground. How long did she stay there? What happened next? Yes, so we would expect that she would stay there for um, between two to six years foraging until she reached um, good um, healthy energy reserves to be able to do that navigational feat again. Uh, Because in total, if you calculate that she did a three-month navigation from her nesting ground to her foraging ground, plus the three months to go from the foraging ground to nesting ground, and then she would have laid possibly six clutches of eggs, so that would take about three months of breeding time. Uh, So that's nine months that she has been away from her foraging grounds without eating, essentially, so fasting. So it takes a while to build up those reserves. So there's a question I've always had about turtles, because you described them uh, building up reserves. And we, in the human world, we associate that with getting fat because we carry our extra energy as fat. But a turtle has quite a hard shell. Yes. How, how does a turtle get fat? Is there all that, is there loads of extra room in there? 
<laughs> yeah, well, there isn't actually, um, as you say. So they, um, they're plastrons, so their shell across their stomach, as it were, um, you, that does become concave and convex. Um, as immatures, we definitely notice if a turtle's um, a healthier turtle, then their plastron is, is convex, so it's bulging out. But with adult turtles, they're too heavy to be able to pick up to have a look at their plastrons. What we do observe is that around their shoulders and neck, they look very blubbery. And I often say, wow, that turtle looks really fat. And it's possibly at the beginning of her breeding season and might be her first nest. And then we attach a satellite tag and see that the turtle actually lays a further six, eight, ten clutches of eggs on the beach. And do we know where Serenity is now? We were able to study Serenity's movements for about six months after she arrived at her foraging grounds and then the batteries um, were exhausted of the satellite tag. So we'll um, look out for her again. Nicole Esteban from the University of Swansea. And you can find out more about Nicole's work on the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. It would be amazing if we could track every turtle. Each one has its own fascinating story and there are so many stories to be told. But tracking even a few requires a huge amount of time and resources and also a decent chunk of luck. It's worth the effort though, because the more we know about where they go, the more accurate our population estimates will be. We'll also have a much stronger scientific foundation for protecting these enigmatic ocean voyagers. Nearly all species of turtled are endangered, and each one of them is distinctive and special in its own way. But possibly the most iconic of them all is the leatherback, the largest turtle, which can grow to the size of a golf cart with a weight of around 300 to 700 kilograms. Dr Liliana Coleman from the University of Exeter is based in Brazil and studies how we can better protect turtles. But she started our conversation with why she loves leatherbacks in particular. Leatherbacks are just amazing for me. They're like magnificent creatures. They are massive. They look like dinosaurs. They can travel really fast and really far and they dive really deep. And here in Brazil, they are the most threatened species. Their population size is really small. It's just only a couple of females that come to to nest every year in a very, very small nesting area. So they've got restricted geographic distribution. And I think that's what makes them so special for me. And what are the threats that they're facing? Some of the main threats, which they're all probably exposed to our coastal fisheries, industrial fisheries, pollution of the sea, including plastic, climate change, coastal development or building of the, the nesting areas, and light pollutions are some of the threats they're facing. I think it's quite easy to understand why fishing and climate change could be a problem, but light pollution, that's something that it's perhaps harder to see how that might hurt a turtle. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so we don't really notice the like impact of uh, artificial light at night. But for some species, the darkness is key for their either reproduction or their foraging. For turtles, either the females come to shore to nest at night 
And the hatchlings also hatch at night and they are guided by the natural glowing of the moonlight or the stars on the sea and the, the waves. And if there's artificial light, they might get disorientated and end up uh, either dying of heat or being eaten by other predators. And this is, uh, this is really bad for the hatchlings. So what, what can we do about that? Because obviously, if you want humans to be secure, they need light on land, but the turtles need there not to be light and they both want to use the same bit of space. So what can we do about that? We have 8,000 kilometers of coastline in Brazil. We're not going to be able to keep it all dark. But we are making the most to keep the main nesting areas dark. So we've got protected areas uh, like biological reserves that are no light areas. We have some fishing villages that have a minimum light and the cities, they can have occasional nests. Then someone will go there and try to get the eggs and relocate it to a safe beach. So the hatchlings will not uh, get disorientated like the turtle mum. I mean, turtle conservation is one of the things we've actually been hearing about for years because they're such a beautiful species. I is it working? Yeah, it's working. Like here in Brazil, we're seeing the recovery of four from the five species following almost 40 years of conservation efforts. Seeing population numbers increasing is really, really good considering that they only start reproducing after 20 years. So I think we are going in the right direction. Obviously, we can't really estimate the impact of um, threats that are happening now because we might only be able to see those impacts in the next generations. You've described leatherback turtles as being like dinosaurs. You know, they, they have clearly been on Earth for a very, very long time, millions of years. How adaptable are they in a changing world? Yeah, so there's there's been a lot of research on the potential resilience of uh, turtles and leatherbacks to climate change. One of the things that could happen is that they could start colonizing different beaches, like coal beaches, to balance with the um, really hot nesting areas that we see now. But turtles come to nest where they were born, so we don't really know how much of the new colonization could happen and remains to be understood. When it comes to the future of turtle conservation, especially in Brazil, what, what does the future look like? Are, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, I think the great picture is that the nesting numbers are thought to have been bigger in the past. And now with better monitoring and conservation actions, we are seeing the recovery of some populations and even some species uh, globally. It's a good overall sign for turtles. And I just hope they are still here for the next generations to come. When you see a healthy turtle in the ocean, it feels timeless. They were cruising across Earth's ocean when the steam engine was invented, when the Romans built the Colosseum, when the pharaoh Khufu was buried in the Great Pyramid of Giza, while the ice sheets advanced and retreated across the Northern Hemisphere, and while the Atlantic Ocean itself opened up as tectonic plates shifted at the rate your fingernails grow. They're a reminder that today's ocean carries the legacy of its past, but they're also a critical part of a healthy modern ocean ecosystem. 
we absolutely have a responsibility to make sure that these beautiful animals come with us into the future. And I really think that we can succeed if we choose to. But we do need to act now, to put the effort in now, and to help these great navigators find their way through a changing world. Thank you to Professor Graham Hayes, Holly Stokes, Dr Nicole Esteban and Dr Liliana Coleman. One of the biggest steps in ensuring a healthy future for our ocean is to make it part of our own world. And that means talking about the ocean, sharing knowledge and ideas about it, and most of all, sharing our enthusiasm for the blue of our blue planet. That's why we make this podcast. And if you like what we're doing, it'd be great if you could share it with your friends and followers on social media. It really helps us to spread the word about what's at stake. And if you're listening somewhere where you can leave a review, we would love to hear what you think. With COP26 around the corner, next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be exploring the impact of the climate crisis on our ocean. I'm Helen Chersky, and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.